Genesis chapter 38 is one of the most horrific, debased, and beautiful texts in all of the scriptures. It is the best worst story. It's the story of how God takes this broken, sinful, selfish person and makes him into something wonderful out of his life. It's a story that whispers on every line, hope. Specifically, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show us that how I begin doesn't decide how I end. It's going to show us that God can redeem my brokenness. It's going to show us that by God's grace, listen to this, by God's grace, people really do change. That by God's grace, even the ugliest things in my life can be made into something beautiful. So in the book of Revelation chapter 21, um, we get this glimpse of a new heaven, a new earth. And, and specifically, there's this great, great new city there, and there are streets of gold, and this is the place where God will wipe away every tear from their eye. You know, you, you remember the scene. And as you come up to this great new city from heaven, the new Jerusalem, there's this, these gates, these gates, and they're glimmering and shining like jewels. And, and as you enter into the mighty gates, one of them entering into the very presence of God, you see uh, the word Yehuda in Hebrew, which is Judah. Judah's family would become the great tribe of God's people. That Judah's name is where we get the word Jew. That kings will come from his line. That Jesus will personally be associated with him. So Jesus, his title in Revelation chapter 5 is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That Judah is this great, great man of God. That if you look at the end of the story, there's a gate into the very presence of God with his name on it. Jesus associates with the man. The lines of king, David, Jesus himself comes from this man. That's the end of the story, but that is not how the story begins. How it begins is Genesis chapter 38. Starting in verse 1, it says this. It happened at that time... Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirod. So there's a certain Adulamite. So let's, let's dig into this and let's remember where we're at, right? Last week, you get this brief introduction to a guy named Judah. And the introduction, he doesn't leave a good first impression, right? So he's from this family. Dear old dad marries two women, pretty, and the wild cow. And then he has two girlfriends, and then he has 12 sons and a daughter, and Judah is number four out of the 12 sons. But if you remember, the first three, they do, they're, they're reprobates. So somehow he bumps to the top of the family food chain, and then he starts having this influence, and he uses his influence to say, let's not kill Joseph, let's sell him into slavery. Yeah, let's make a profit off of him. Why should we just let him die when we could make money off of him? So that's what they do. And at that scene, we see that Judah is this selfish, wicked, heartless child of the family of God. So here, at that time, this is right after that. At that time, like he just sold Joseph off. They got 20 shekels of silver for that, remember? So he takes his lot. He's got the bags of money. And what does he do? He moves off. To Adulam, which is a Canaanite town. And, and he becomes friends with a Canaanite named Hira. All right? Now this, this, my friends, is not a small deal. He is moving to Canaanite territory. This is your cousin 
who grew up in church, went to church three times uh, a week, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, knew all the Bible verses, had all the like little pins that you get from, from Sunday school class, and then he graduates from high school, moves to Manhattan, moves in with a girl, and his Instagram feed is now full of like debauchery. That's what this is. He's leaving his family, he's leaving his faith, and it begins with his new friend, Hira. You probably have had a friend like this before. I have. Some of you have been this friend. So here is, um, if you really, really want to sin, you call him up. Like this is your friend with zero conscience. This is the friend where you're like, if you just want to like blow off some steam, this is the guy you go to. This is the guy, like if you, you spend the night hanging out with this guy, there's a really good chance you're going to wake up the next morning like the back of an El Camino with a new tattoo. All right, that's this guy. This is a guy who loves life and never, never, never would make you feel bad. So when, like, things go wrong and you get drunk and you accidentally leave your wallet at the strip club, this is the friend who's like, don't worry, I'll fix that for you. That's this guy. Um, just as a reminder, Proverbs 13.20 says, A companion of fools suffers harm. If this is one of your close friends, if you have close friends who encourage you to curse, drink, watch porn, lie, gossip, overindulge, there's a chance, there's a chance that maybe you'll be leading them to Christ, but there's also a chance that you need some new friends. Do not be misled, the Apostle Paul says. Bad company corrupts good character. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Great name. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, or we could say Sheila. It reminds me of a boy named Sue. You know that song? Oh, okay. Let's forget it. Judah was in Shebez when he, she bore him. So, so what's the point? This whole scene is set in a Canaanite world. And so he enters in. He leaves. Leaves behind his faith and family. Goes into the big city. And he finds this hot Canaanite girl. And he's like, oh, she's awesome. Now, Canaanite, that means she worship, worships other gods. Has a different set of values. Lives a different lifestyle. And, and if you remember right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they explicitly forbid their sons from marrying Canaanites. But those are old guys. What do they know? I mean, she's hot. Come on. So I want you to notice the choice of words. Like if you were to sit down with them and say, Judah, man, this marriage, this is awesome. So if you would, um, how did you two fall in love? Just tell me the story. And he's like, yeah, I... I took her and went into her. How romantic. Like this, isn't that just touching? That's their love story right here. If, if you read this, this, you just see the vile, lustful nature of this. It reminds me of the words of that great English poet, Egg Sheeran. <laughs> I'm in love with your body. This is the original, yes. Why did he marry her? Because I was in love with her body. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and named her Tamar. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So that last phrase there is important. The Lord put him to death. If you literally translate that in Hebrew, it says, the Lord put him to death. In the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, we discover that God sometimes says, enough. I'm done. Like, you're not going to repent. I know where you're headed. I'm not going to let you destroy people and my creation anymore enough. So, I mean, this, this gets us to ask the question, should we be afraid? Should we be afraid? Like, is this something you and I should fear in our lives? And, and the answer is no. No. Unless, unless you're unrepentant and openly living in disobedience to God's word, then you should be terrified. That's what that means. That's the point of that text. Um, can I remind you that in the New Testament, this is Hebrews chapter 10, it says it is a dreadful or fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they show up to, to the offering box like we have in the back. And they're like, hey, I'm going to give this money. They're like, is that all the money? They're like, yes, we're so generous. And then boom, boom, they die. you got to believe that helped their giving campaign that year. First time ever they made budget. It was great. Um, communion. First Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, when he says examine yourselves, you know what he says in that, right after that. He says, some of you haven't been examining yourselves. And specifically, though, he's talking, this is really bad. We're not just talking minor stuff. We're talking people showing up and being selfish and getting drunk at communion. I mean, being completely immoral at communion. So, obviously, they didn't use grape juice. But, anyways, it was terrible. And he says, this is why some of you are sick and falling asleep, which means dying. That in the New Testament, you see God killing wicked people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, some of you might be offended by this. And I recognize this. This is a hard teaching to hear. But I do want to ask why. Like, why might I be offended by this? Am I more concerned about how God treats people or about how people treat God? Am I more in love with people or am I more in love with God? Can I just say, some of you have been lied to, like there's been a big smiling pastor or one of those devotionals that's like chicken soup for the soul. And it's full of these lines where he's like, Jesus doesn't care about sin. He just affirms you no matter what. Like, it doesn't matter if you reject him and rebel against him forever. Jesus just wants to put flowers in your hair and whisper in your ear. He loves you. Like, like if you read these, these texts, you I get the sense that Jesus is the type of person who, like, uses a curling iron and essential oils and walks through fields of flowers, blowing kisses everywhere. But that, that my friends, is the Jesus that someone's made up. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's just not true. Now, here's what is true. Jesus loves you. I can say that. I can say that. He loves you so much he died on the cross for you. You know what's true? You can't out God's grace. You can't. That if you are his, it's not like you can sin so bad that he's going to give up on you. He won't. He can redeem anything, any brokenness in your life. But it's also true that if you live in unrepentant sin, deliberately keep on sinning, the author of Hebrews says, he might 
kill you. It's also true that if you never repent and you live your whole life rebelling against his rule, that will end in your destruction one way or the other. And the biblical term for that is hell. And you should be afraid. Jesus himself says it this way. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and soul, the soul and body in hell. That's Matthew 10, 28, that we are to be afraid. Like he says these words because he literally wants to scare the hell out of you. Some of you are really disturbed right now, and I get that. I do. I do have two big requests, and I know this is asking a lot from you, but I I do want to ask two things of you when we look at this. One is please try and hear the rest of the story. Because yes, he kills Ur, and it's going to be bad for a while, but he's actually, we're going to see his grace too in this story. That this, this is the beginning of the story. This is not the end of the story. If you would just try and listen to that. And the second thing I want you to know is if you're really disturbed, I hope that that stirs an action in you. Specifically, I hope that you test my words in this. I hope that you go home and read the Bible and see if it's true. Not just that devotional and not just that smiling preacher, but you open your Bible and see if this is true and see if there's a God who is both loving and just in the Scriptures. I'd suggest that you start in the book of Hebrews. Verse 8. Judah said to Onan, this is his son, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So um, imagine you're in the ancient Near East, right? And you have a brother who's married and and then before he has any kids, he dies, has a widow left. Now what's going to happen to that woman? I mean, economically, she has no power. She, She can't like go out and get a job. Like, she has no political power, and, and if, if she's already been married once, nobody wants to marry her at this point. So her options are, A, she could beg for money. B, she could sell herself into slavery. C, she could sell herself as a prostitute. Or D, she could go home to daddy and start collecting cats forever. All right, so those are our options, and, and everyone, not just the, the ancient Israelites, but everyone in the ancient Near East saw this as like, this is a problem with our society, right? If, if, she, if, if she's a, a widow, then suddenly there's no one to take care of her. So in the ancient Near East, they embraced a social practice that we call the Levite or Levite marriage. You can see it detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 25 if you want to look that up later. And here's the deal. It's now the brother's job, the brother-in-law, or the nearest male relative. It's his duty to marry the widow and have kids with her. See, her kids were going to be the ancient Near Eastern version of a 401k. Right? This is, this is her retirement plan. So here's the catch, though. When, when you marry that widow, when you take her into your home and you have kids with her, her kids are not legally your heirs. Her kids are legally the heirs of the dead brother. So this is actually, as as barbaric as this might sound, you're going to sleep with your brother-in-law. Gross. This is actually a totally selfless act. The guy would have to bring her into his household. He has to care for her. He has to provide for her. It costs him something. And yet, in the end, the inheritance doesn't go to his family. It goes, it's all given to the brother's line. So, So here's the logic. Here's the situation. Onan starts doing this math. Their family, remember from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Judah, is wealthy. They are wealthy. 
And he starts adding up the inheritance that he could have, and he's, he's seeing millions here, millions. Like he's going to cash out big time. So he's looking at this, and then he realized, though, that his, his brother, the firstborn, Ur, dies. And remember, the firstborn gets a double portion of the inheritance. That's big time money. But with him out of the way, suddenly Onan gets the double portion. He's the guy who's going to cash out on this big. The only thing that could stand in the way of Onan getting all of that money is if Tamar has a son. If Tamar has a son, all that money will go back through that line as opposed to go to him. And he sees this and thinks, I need to take some action, which leads us to verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. For some reason, they never make like coloring pages out of this one. I've never seen this, like, in, in a VBS program. I mean, I, I was really, I was thinking, like, I, I want to be the first one to put this on Instagram. So here you go, guys. I'm going to share this with you. Uh, so you can all post that on your Facebook page later. Um, can I just say, I'm going to save you some time right now. Don't email me. No, <laughs> uh, no. It's in the Bible. I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. Um, let's, let's look at this text. Um, look at what this text is about and see if this has any contemporary relevance here. This is a young man who says, oh, yes, I like sex. I would like to have lots of sex. Yes, please. But I don't want to sign up for anything. It costing me anything for any responsibility. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> and this isn't a one-time thing. See that word Whenever. Whenever means whenever. It means this is a repeated activity. That he kept her around so that he could have sex with her whenever he wanted to. So he's like, yes, I want to enjoy endless quantities of sex. But I don't want any commitment. I don't want it to cost me anything. And I certainly don't want any kids. Some of you are like, are there men like this? I'm like, shocking, I know. Shocking. There are some young men that want sex without commitment. Can you believe it? Uh, this is um, until very, very recently in human history, in those terms. Um, for thousands and thousands of years, um, sex, marital commitment, a loving commitment, and children were all interrelated. Uh, crazy, I know. Crazy. But for thousands of years of human history, and certainly through the Judeo-Christian line, marriage, sex, and kids all went together. Um, since modern times, though, since uh, two things, the rise of modern birth control, 1950s on, and the sexual revolution of the 1960s, we can now do what was previously impossible. We can now completely separate sex from procreation. We can separate cause from effect. We can separate sex, the act of sex, from, from its purpose. So, um, uh, just to be clear, I'm not opposed to all birth control. It's a gift from God if used wisely. But we need to stop and think about what this has done to our culture, and specifically us as the people of God. And if you just think about what birth control and the modern sexual revolution has done, let, let me um, lay out a few facts here. On average, Americans will lose their virginity when they are 17, 
and they'll get married when they're 28. That means there's 11 years of sexual activity outside of marriage, sex that has nothing to do with commitment and nothing to do with kids on average. As a culture, uh, it's safe to say we are obsessed with sex, but specifically, we are obsessed with sexual technique. You cannot check out of the grocery store without seeing five ways to do this to her, or five ways to turn him on, or five, ten things that do this. Like, the, um, if pleasure is the only purpose of sex, then we have to find every way to milk it for all it's worth. If pleasure is the only goal of sex, then what happens is we just get weirder and weirder. All we're, all we're left with is not a relationship or not what it produces in joy through children. All we're left with is, is weird, kinky sexual techniques. And our world's obsessed with it. Now that sex is almost exclusively ripped away from marriage, ripped away from childbearing, and it's almost exclusively recreational, our culture believes that you can and should have sex with anyone, anytime, any way you want. In fact, with the meteoric rise of internet porn, other people are optional. All you need is high-speed internet. We now live in a world in which women's breasts are considered ornamental. I want you to think about that. They've lost all sense of purpose or function. They're purely ornamental because when you lose the function and purpose of sex, you lose the function and purpose of your body. So here's the question I want to ask as we come to the text. How does God feel about this? How does God feel about selfish people who want to use other people for their sexual pleasure but shirk all responsibility and all commitment? How does God feel about separating sex from relationship and commitment? It says, verse 10, And, he, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. God kills him. Do you hear this? 17 to 28-year-olds, do, do you hear this? God hates it. Selfish, uncommitted sex is evil. And and let me explain why. Pleasure is not evil. Sex is not evil. None of this individually is evil. But it's taking one of the most beautiful, selfless things that God has given us. One of the most God-glorifying things that God has given us. Where he takes a man and a woman and the way they come together. That two individual persons come together in this explosion of beauty and selflessness and pleasure. And it creates a third person. That right there is supposed to be a picture of the image of God. But you take that out and you make it about my pleasure. You, you let me use someone else for my pleasure. And it inverts, it twists, it perverts the image of God in us. So that sex now becomes about manipulation and abuse and selfishness. And that, to take something good and twist it into something ugly and perverse, that is the textbook definition of evil. That is the textbook definition of taking the image of God and twisting it, perverting it. God hates it. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's household till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's household. So Judah tells her, just go home. Go home. I can't lose any more boys today. (laughs) 
go home. My, my youngest son, he's going to grow up, and then I'll give him to you. But we know that that's actually not the case really here. We know that he, he's, he's really just delaying her. If you read the rest of the text, you realize this is just him buying time. He has no intentions of giving his third son to her. Um, two, two observations in this. Number one is Judah is now positioning himself as the father of faithlessness. So who's the father of faith? Abraham. And how did he, he achieve that title? He sacrificed. He withheld nothing from God, even his one and only son. So Judah, Judah, now we're asking to be obedient to God. You need to give your one and only son to this woman. That's obedience to God in this case. Will you do it? And he's like, no, nope, nope, not going to do it. He is, in Genesis terms, the father of faithlessness. Number two, who's Judah blaming for the death of his sons? Does he blame his wicked, wicked sons? No. He blames Tamar. Like, can this happen? Can a man act wicked and immoral ways, like wickedly to women? Can they abuse women, manipulate them, uh, use them for their own purposes, throw them away like, like, like trash, do horrific things to women, and then turn around and blame the woman for their own behavior? Can that happen? Have you ever seen this before? I don't know, maybe on the front page of CNN in the last two weeks. I am not trying to make a political statement, though there is an executive order permitting me to do so right now. <laughs> I am not trying to make a political statement, but I do want to point out that this Bronze Age text feels eerily contemporary. God is not okay with men hurting women and him blaming them. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. She died. And Judah, so he's, he's a widower. When Judah was comforted, that's the time of the official mourning period was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite uh, with him. So, so Timnah during sheep shearing season, let's um, uh, this is a... Um, Canaanite agrarian culture where they're all separated. But once or twice a year, you have this big payoff season. It's either the crop the, when you bring in the, the new grain or when you do the sheep shearing. And this is when everyone gets a paycheck and they have a huge party. The Canaanites in particular, they coupled this with a bunch of um, religious rites that usually involved prostitutes. So, so Timnah, during sheep shearing season, this is St. Patty's Day in Chicago. This is Mardi Gras in New Orleans, right? This, this is a party. This is Cancun at spring break. And, and he just finishes like, hey, I'm single again. He gets his old drinking buddy and says, let's go party. All right? That's what just happened. Um, verse 13. I don't think I have it in the text, so let me read this to you. It says, when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. So she goes to this little town that's leading up to the big party place. And she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So, so Tamar sees what's going on here. She sees, hey, grandma just died. <laughs> 
and, and there's no way he's giving me a son. He's putting me off forever. He's going to leave me a widow forever. And, and she knows, even as this Canaanite girl, she knows that Judah has the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go, running through his bloods. Like she wants to be part, not of the Canaanite culture, but a part of the family of God. And so she concocts a plan. She gets all dressed up like a prostitute. And then it says in verse 16, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she covered her face. So that's how they, they wore a veil at the time. He said to her at the, uh, at the side of the road, come, let me come into you. He's such a romantic. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So this is a negotiation here. He answered, I will send you a, a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. Uh, it yeah. So, and he said, what plague shall I give you? He replied, she replied, your signet, your cord, your staff that's in your hand. So I want you to picture this. There's this negotiation. He says, I'll give you a goat. And notice, every time in the book of Genesis, if you see a goat show up, just assume someone's getting tricked. All right? Just assume there's a goat in the scene. Uh-oh, something's going on. And then, then he says the goat, and then he says, hey, well, what do you want? Okay, I don't have that on me right now. All I've got is my wallet. What do you want? I've got this uh, credit card, this ID. And she says, yeah, I'll take your driver's license, your personal credit card, and your social security card. All right, thank you. Like, that's, that's what these are. So just to give you an idea, the, uh, the signet was actually something you'd wear on a cord around your neck, and then you'd, you'd like, pour out something soft like wax, and then you'd roll it out, and it would have your personal branding, your personal mark on it. Your staff would have your personal head on it. So, so these were personal identifiers for business purposes, for transaction purposes. Like, she's literally asking him for his personal, most personal things that he has, like a, a driver's license or credit card. And, um, and he gives it to her. Now, why in the world would someone give these personal identifiers to a prostitute, I do not know. But if someone's looking for prostitutes in Timnah, you can assume that they've left good judgment a long time ago, okay? All right, so, so here's where they're at. He gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived. And she, went, uh, and she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put the garments uh, of her widowhood, put on the garments of her widowhood. So she's done with the ruse there. Leaves When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he's like, here, I can't go back in there. Like, I have no idea what I did. Like, it was such a wild party. Will you go pay this woman for me? So he sends him back with the goat. And they go back in town. And we see Hira the Adulamite. He asks the men of the place, hey, where's the, the cult prostitute who was at? And Naim at the roadside, where, where was she? i got to pay this bill. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. Uh-oh. So she returned to Judah and said, I, I have not found her. Um, also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. If only you knew a thousand, you know, four thousand years later. Um, you see this young goat? Uh, you see, I sent this young goat and did not find her. So he's like, hey, let's just cut it off. Let's just pretend like that never happened. And then we come to the final end of the story here. Watch this. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let 
her be burned. Burn her. This is too good. Like, you may have sinned and act judgmental before, but I'm telling you, anything you've done is pretty much JV compared to this. Like, he's in a class of his own. He is heroically wicked here. I, I just want to lay out, Judas sells his brother into slavery. He ditches his family and his faith. He marries for lust. He utterly fails as a father. His sons are so wicked, God himself has to kill them. He blames Tamar for the death of his wicked sons, and he likes to party with prostitutes. That's Judah. Now, self-righteous Judah hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant out of wedlock, and what's his response? Burn her. I mean, the only surprise in this text right now is that fire itself doesn't shoot down from heaven and consume the man. That's the only thing surprising. He is heroically wicked. As she was being brought out, she sent word to a father, her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, and he did not know her again. Literally says, she is righteous, not I. Like, this is the moment. I'm the whore. I'm the one who deserves to be burned to death. There are moments in life when God grabs your attention. And some of us continue to rebel and some of us are broken and crushed by them and changed. Judah's going to be changed. You know, for a bit of freedom and sex, Judah had been willing to walk away entirely from God's promises, walk away from God's family. And yet here is this poor, weak Canaanite girl who has no reason to be moral, no reason to love God. And yet she is willing to do whatever it takes to be part of God's family, whatever it takes to get his blessing, whatever it takes. And when Judah sees Tamar, he's crushed. He's crushed by his own unrighteousness. And crushed by God's grace. Because after this, Tamar's going to have twins. And through the son Perez, God's promises will be fulfilled. Through Judah's son Perez, kings will come. King David will come. A king named Jesus will come. And at this point in the text, you start to hear the whisper of hope. That maybe how I begin doesn't decide how I end. That maybe God can redeem my brokenness. Maybe he can take an ugly, ugly thing like I'm sleeping with a prostitute and make something beautiful out of it. So the next time we see Judah is not for chapters. It's uh, Genesis chapter 44. 22 years have passed since we saw him sell his brother into slavery. He started hanging out with Hera. He's an older man at this point, a man who knows his own unrighteousness, knows the grace of God. And he's standing in Genesis chapter 24. He's standing, actually kneeling before this great Egyptian ruler. He has no idea that it's his brother Joseph. And this, this Egyptian ruler says, um, demands that his younger brother Benjamin be put in prison. 
And so what is Judah going to do? His, his younger brother is going to be thrown in prison. Now remember, Judah is the man who at one time sold his younger brother for personal gain. But he is now a changed man. When he hears what's going to happen to Benjamin, he says, take me. Imprison me. Kill me. He lays down his life for his brother. And that's the moment that's going to break the whole story open. That's the moment when Joseph starts weeping and has to reveal himself to his brothers. That's the moment. Because that's the moment of grace where God's grace has took the very man who sold Joseph into slavery and turned him into a man who will now lay down his life for his brother. Do you hear this? Judah, the godless, sexed up, self-righteous sinner, has become a picture of sacrificial love. He becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. And God, God, God is concerned that we see this. Like he stops everything and says, I'm going to take an entire chapter of my scriptures and I want you to see this, man, because this is what grace can do. Like, did you see that? That's my child. That's what a king looks like. That's how I'm going to build my kingdom. That's what I want. This is how you come to me. You come to me as a person who's a sinner, broken, self-righteous in your utter immorality. And I take it and I make something beautiful out of it so that you can now enter into my presence. presence. That's what grace does. Because how I begin does not decide how I end. God can redeem my brokenness. God's grace can change people. That God can take the ugliest things in my life. He can take my hatred, my sin, my brokenness, and he can make something beautiful. He can change the whole world through a broken sinner like Judah and like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on just the, the weight of sin and guilt, God, I pray that those who relate more to Judah in the early stages, Lord, that they would be crushed by their unrighteousness and crushed by your grace. I pray that today would be a voice for them to hear that you are a God who hates evil but so delights, not in the death of the sinner, but in a sinner turning and coming to you. And you want to build your kingdom out of such as these, Lord. God, I pray that our name will someday be etched on the new heavens and new earth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.